It's the Inspiring Voice Podcast from iVoice Communication. I'm Donna Rastigian-Mack. Welcome. With all the noise in the world, are you able to hear your own inspiring voice? And are you able to use your voice to be successful in business and in life? This is what we do at iVoice Communication, a company that creates confident speakers, successful interpersonal communicators, and healthy human connections. I've been in the communication industry my whole adult life, and I'm also the author of Guide to a Richer Life. Know your worth, find your voice, and speak what's true to you. Please check it out. On the podcast today, we get to hear from a couple of guys, good guys who wrote the book called Good Guys, how men can be better allies for women in the workplace. And I have to say, Brad Johnson and David Smith are very evolved men. Both are highly educated, spent time in the military, and both have a personal story as to why they want to help women grow as leaders in the workplace. Now, I've spent much of my career helping women take full responsibility for their leadership journeys. So I'll tell you, it was pretty heartwarming and so refreshing to meet Brad and Dave, who want to give women an assist. Today, they'll talk about the tremendous benefits, personal and professional benefits of doing this work, how becoming better allies for women in the workplace can ignite and support your DEI initiative. They'll also talk about some realities, like women who've had their ideas stolen right in the middle of a meeting. They'll also discuss how this is not a women's issue. This is a leadership issue. Plus, Brad and David also introduce and explain some very cool and important phenomena like exposure therapy, GQ. I'll give you a hint on that one. It's kind of like the cousin to EQ, reluctant male syndrome, and some solid steps you can take to get this all started and help women step into their roles as leaders in the workplace. It's all coming up. The Inspiring Voice Podcast, Brad Johnson and David Smith, authors of Good Guys. Today, we'll begin with some introductions and Brad. Yes. So I'll jump in. I'm I'm Brad Johnson. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. I have spent most of my career uh, after serving for a while as a medical service officer in the Navy as a psychologist. I I spent most of my career here at the U.S. Naval Academy uh, teaching. And, you know, most of my research and writing has been in the area of mentoring and sponsoring over the course of my career. And I've always been academically interested in all of the research showing that women just don't get mentored uh, as often as men do. They certainly get less sponsoring, active, you know, advocacy. Uh, than, than men actually get in the workplace. And the, often the quality of the mentoring is not quite the same. And I've always been curious about why men stay on the sidelines and don't engage with women uh, as mentors, colleagues. So that's kind of the academic part of it. And then for me, um, personally, I've got one sibling and she also is a naval officer, but she stayed in her whole career. And so I've had nearly 30 years to uh, be part of Shannon's journey and watch her encounter headwinds 
but I never forget. Uh, even though we have similar personality, we're in the same profession, Shannon encounters pushback and headwinds and various kinds of bias that I never did. Can you give us a um, couple of so I, real, real examples? Oh, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, let's start with maybe what doesn't seem like it's the most egregious, but it adds up to what women often call death by a thousand cuts. So mm. very frequently, Shannon is told that she should smile more. Mm. Um, no one's ever told me that, Donna, ever. Um, <laughs> she, When she gives men very clear and deliberate feedback, she is told that she is aggressive or emasculating. Mm -hmm. uh, again, terms that I've never heard before. Uh, and then finally, uh, you know, maybe humorous, but it's not when it happens to you. Uh, she was once kind of made to feel ashamed for running so fast on a physical fitness test in the Navy mm -hmm. uh, because all the men felt bad about being beaten by a woman, especially a younger woman. And, and so I got to say, this is just stuff that never occurs to me and doesn't happen in my life. Mm -hmm. And so watching... Shannon, deal with that so gracefully. Um, it has opened my eyes in a lot of ways. So with all of that, I was ready when Dave arrived here, and I'll let him introduce himself, but I was ready to really uh, collaborate with Dave as a sociologist um, around these questions. Why don't men engage? Why do they stay on the sidelines? And why aren't we part of the solution uh, as half the, the human species? We, we can see all the evidence about women being excluded and um, the workplace not being equitable. So why don't we engage? And that was really the impetus for our, our research together. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. And thank you for painting that picture, that real picture for us, which, uh, you know, makes this project uh, a passion project, in addition to a, an academic project for you. So, yes, thank you. And yes, you next, David. Uh, we'd like to hear from you and how you got to where you are with us today. Yeah, and, and certainly you're going to hear a lot of common uh, refrains here between us. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think we have a, it's just, a, I think the story the narrative of how we got into this work, I think, is really important uh, in a lot of different ways, and we can talk more about that at some point. But uh, for me, uh, I, I, you know, I came into the Navy as well. I was a Navy pilot, a little different track than Brad, and uh, spent 30 years on active duty doing that. The last part of that, though, I spent as a academic, though, at the Naval Academy, teaching with Brad, uh, which is where we began our collaboration. And uh, but my background is in sociology and. Specifically, I do all of my research in the area of the, we, we talk about the intersection of gender, work, and family. And a lot of my research started looking at the experiences of dual career families uh, in the military in that context, uh, which is part of my passion too, because that was my personal lived experience. Uh, my partner, my wife, uh, also active duty Navy, retired Navy officer today as well. And, and so we lived that together. And so, you know, I got to see it firsthand, front, front and center, uh, so to speak. And, uh, and it just was eye-opening for me. And, and much like Brad, you know, a lot of this very similar experiences. But, you know, for, for me also watching, in many cases, the challenges, and, you know, I know Brad always appreciate this, of how she didn't have the same access to some resources, developmental resources, things like mentors and sponsors and people just to be there in your corner. 
um, when you needed advice and because you were seen as different um, and seen maybe as not as worthy uh, of being there. And, and it just, it was infuriating, of course, you know, I think for those of us who have uh, women in our lives who we care about and we want to see them uh, reach their full potential and thrive in the same way that we get to, it's just, it's really, it's really heart wrenching to watch that and to see it firsthand. And so that shaped a lot of my own experiences and my research questions as well. And, but that journey has been, I think, really important. That personal narrative we find really important for, for men, especially as they're talking about why they're involved in doing this work. Because I think, rightly so, a lot of women are skeptical. Um, it's like, so what's your angle? What's your purpose? Why are you, you know, like, yeah, like we have somebody, to benefit somebody uh, firsthand in some way. Two older white gentlemen, really, leading this charge? And I said, you know, what? I'm going <laughs> to ask them about it. And that's why the personal story and the professional story, they do work hand in hand. And, you know, one of the first things that struck me as I dug into the book was obviously the benefits for women, but there are just tremendous benefits for humans in general and men and even older white gentlemen as time goes on and tremendous benefits for companies as well. So why don't we talk about that for a little while? I mean, why, right? Why is this so important to not only women, but all of the above as well? Brad, perhaps we can start with you here. And we don't talk about this nearly enough, Donna. I think this would come across, if, it's, if you're not careful, this would come across as rescuing or doing something just for the ladies, as it were, mm-hmm. right? You, you kind of hear that narrative. Here's my and we don't really talk, armor, right? <laughs> right, <laughs> The white knighting issue around allyship, mm-hmm. I think we have to be careful about. There's so much in this for men. And so on the interpersonal front, here's what we find in the research. Men who do this a lot and do it well tend to have broader networks. They, uh, they simply have access to information in the organization and in the profession they wouldn't have if they didn't have close female colleagues or mentees or mentors who are women. They develop better interpersonal skills. Their communication skill goes up. Broadly, I would say many of those markers of emotional intelligence improve when men have closer relationships with women. And those are not things I have to check when I leave work, right? I get to take those home with me to become a better partner and a better parent. And I think that gets really overlooked, how men benefit. You know, Dave and I are tracking research in the last several years here about which men are getting promoted to the C-suite in the last several years. And it's a really fascinating thing, Donna, that they, by and large, are men with better EQ, better communication skills, humility, authenticity, empathy. These are things we find that tend to go up for men when they have really good cross-gender friendships and relationships. They just get better in this space. And so there's a lot in this for men, you know, career-wise, personally. We find that men with uh, women in their corner as mentees or mentors um, tend to develop lifelong friendships with women that just become invaluable for them really a kind of a, a delightful outcome of good mentoring. So on the interpersonal front, that's what we, we find. But Dave, other benefits? Yeah, I love that list. And, you know, I think the the outcome of all those interpersonal aspects that I think we, I don't think we give enough uh, emphasis to is that you become known, it becomes, you know, 
as Brad said, kind of part of your identity, your brand, your personal brand is you're, you're one of the, you know, I'm not going to call him one of the good guys, but you're one of, you're the guy who gets it right. And you're the guy that women in the women's networks, uh, and they're, you know, again, looking at different networks, the, of how we spread information and pass information along. You're one of the guys that people, women want ought to work for. And people know that. And so that becomes part, you know, you become that rainmaker of talent and an attraction of talent into your organization just because of who you are. And I think that, you know, today, especially in the market that we're in, I think that's incredibly valuable as we think about where we're going and, and how we're going to deal with this. But speaking of the market, the business piece of this, I think, is, is really important. There's a human um, and, case and there's a business case. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, and I think the business case, there, there's a little bit of overlap in, in terms of the, as Brad said, you know, there's a career piece that individual men as leaders that they benefit from, but it also helps the business side of that as well. Um, there's also a moral case to that too. And that, you know, I think most people believe as leaders, as managers that, you know, I have a right or an obligation, an obligation there to take care of my, the people that work for me and to make sure that they succeed. And they're, you know, leading, you know, they're, they're achieving their highest potential and that the highest levels of performance. And again, um, if you're doing that really well, then again, you're going to, you're going to achieve all that. So the business case is pretty, pretty mark, remarkable in the sense that the more diversity we have, and we, again, we're talking about gender diversity here, but it also applies in a lot of, in all the other dimensions of diversity that, you know, organizations do better teams do better, right? They, they're more successful. They make better decisions They're more creative They're more innovative you measure your bottom line in terms of profits and losses, you're more profitable. Um, one of the interesting things about this, a lot of that research is that it tends to be correlational and people like to pick at that a little bit. Um, but recently, you know, the last couple of years, we found actual causal relationships there. That is, we increased the percentage of women on senior leadership teams, boardrooms, C-suites, those companies are outperforming their competitors. So in, the, in this stakeholder right shareholder world, can you say th- that one important. more time? I mean, it's a fact, right? Can you? Yeah, it is. Just it is a. It? Yeah, yeah. It's an empirical fact that those those organizations with more women on their senior leadership teams outperform their competitors. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you. And that has been for quite some time, right? We've known that. And I also think it's amazing that you're really focusing on women right now because women first, right? You want to focus on women first. And it just, it, it's a natural progression that it flows into diversity, equity, and inclusion, and really trying to um, just make light, certainly, of the biases, right, that are flowing through organizations. But women is where you feel as though it needs to begin, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think there's a there's a bit of a comfort piece here as we think about, again, the target audience of, of men engaging more men in this conversation that there's, they're more comfortable, right? There, there's a, there's a, an ability to enter into this conversation a little bit easier as, as we think about it from a gender perspective, um, a little more challenging as we think about other dimensions of diversity and race and disability and sexuality, um, a little bit more challenging. And if we can do this well, and again, I think it's really important because there's there's both a business or organizational side of this, but there's also the home side. The the what goes on outside of work is is not um, you know is not something we can exclude from this conversation. We have to think about that part of it. So, again, most of us in families find that gender is a 
you know, helpful way to enter into this conversation. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And if you have people listening today, gentlemen, who really want to dig into a project like this, um, as I was digging into your book, I was reading about um, the importance of stepping back to observe, right? To observe what is happening, specifically in meetings, right? Around the board table. What do you think they will see first and experience first? What have you experienced? Boy, there's so much going on here, uh, Donna. And this is a bit of an epiphany when men really take that challenge mm -hmm. and really do begin just stepping back and observing. Because, you know, let's be clear, many of these little microaggressions and sources of bias just do not happen to us. They're not directed our way. So we don't notice it. We're not aware. But when men step back and start looking, they're going to see some things. Number one, who got included in the meeting? Who's there? Who's even in the room? Even if she has key subject matter expertise, she may not have been invited. And then how about the dynamics in the room? Who's sitting at the table? Um, who's in the outer row? Who has a nameplate? Uh, who's getting to speak? Um, you know, who's getting all the airtime in that meeting versus who's not getting the opportunity to speak? Who's being interrupted three times as often as the other gender? It's women. Um, you know, the infamous man interrupter. Um, you know, are you noticing that when it happens? How about having your ideas stolen, right? Yeah. I got to be honest, when Dave and I started the research, I'd never heard of this before. But so many women in interviews said they're in a meeting, they share a great idea. Um, people respond, eh. They know, don't care. Eh. They're not right, right. They don't care. Ten minutes later, some dude says the same thing, basically, but repackaged uh, slightly. And everyone's like, wow, Dave, that's a brilliant idea. W women, women tell us this happens so often, they have their own language for it, right? They call that being bro-propriated or mm -hmm. heated or imitated. And if you're a male, and this has not happened to you before, you, this is going to be a shock to you directly recognize how women are encountering the workplace. And then, you know, let's be honest, there's just a language issue. What language is being used uh, that excludes women? You know, is it guys, dudes, you know, who knows what the language is? It may sound very subtle. Um, or how about benevolent sexism? Hey, you know, uh, Donna's a really good cook. Did you know that about her? Uh, people are saying that kind of thing, but they're not talking about your competence and your expertise, right? Mm -hmm. I've got to be attuned, I think, to all of this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then once they start observing and seeing, experiencing, and being honest with themselves, you recommend the next step is to just establish basic trusted relationships, right? Basic trusted relationships with the females, with the women with whom you work. Yeah. Everything really comes from that trust. Uh, because again, this is where people are willing to open up and share uh, different experiences, things that they're experiencing in the workplace. Uh, they're going to share information with you. Again, all things that we need to be successful in the, in the organization, all things we need to make the, the team and the organization run better. Right to make it a better workplace where everybody feels like they they can they're safe to be able to speak up when they see something going on there, or to even feel like they they're valued and they can contribute 
right? They're adding something to what's going on here. And that's not the case in a lot of organizations, unfortunately, today. And, and so, again, um, having that trust and being able to open up to people, uh, to be able to give them feedback. Uh, again, this is how, as men, we're going to get better and we're going to have some of our blind spots. Uh, they're going to help us close some of those and because we're going to become more aware, become more gender intelligent. We're going to improve mm-hmm. our GQ as we, we talk about it. Um, so, yeah, that trust is, is such a, a, you know, a big part of it in those, you know, yeah, we can have friends in the, uh, who are women in the workplace and Absolutely. we can have friends and, and we can get past, you know, whatever you're worried about in terms of perceptions of what people might think or say about you. And, you know, you can make it again, back to being part of your brand of who you are as a colleague, as a worker. Mm-hmm. You know, perception, you used the word just a moment ago. I mean, I bet you there's some fear, right? Isn't there some fear a man must feel about stepping into this uncharted territory? I bet you uh, many, many people shy away for fear of fill in the blank for us. Can you help us there? What are they fearing? They fear a lot of things. Mm. And, and this, this is not all men, but by and large, Dave and I, when we did the research for Athena Rising, Donna found so many concerns men have about engaging in closer relationships with women at work. We actually called this reluctant male syndrome. Hmm. And so some of the ingredients include anxiety, right? I, I don't want to say or do the wrong thing. I don't want to step in it. Uh, gossip and rumors, right? If I start mentoring a junior woman, will people begin having a conversation about something going on? Um, maybe I have implicit bias. Uh, I see her as nice, but I don't see her as competent. I don't see her as the future leader uh, in her division or in the organization, so I don't offer mentoring. And then let's be honest, Me Too comes along and we're looking at research from Bloomberg and Lean In that roughly 60% of men post Me Too were saying, no, sorry, I'm not mentoring women. No. And, and, you know, Dave and I, I think, have grown weary reminding men what Me Too was about. Women would love to come to work and not be assaulted or harassed. Really low bar for men to get over. Um, but instead of that, we have this false narrative that women are dangerous or scary. And Dave and I spend a lot of time reminding men, if you have anxiety about women, there's only one treatment. It's called exposure therapy, more interaction. Yeah, we use, this for, we use this for anxiety treatment of any kind. You have to be exposed to what you're afraid of. And you need to take responsibility for that. Don't make that her problem that you have anxiety. Just schedule more coffees, more lunches, more mentoring meetings until you're comfortable with that. More of Brad Johnson and David Smith, authors of Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace, coming right up. It's the Inspiring Voice Podcast. Any words that you could offer a man who is leaning into this space for the first time? Uh, Just inviting her out for a cup of coffee so everybody feels safe as they begin, as they begin this process and this journey. Yes, lots of them. Mm. Uh, So... Where to start? The big one. So I think this was one of the ones that came as a little bit of a shock to to us as we were doing the research for both books is that, you know, first just listen. And I think that, you know, one of the things that did shock us about this in the research that we did was that 
we as men sometimes maybe are not the best listeners and that we could actually work on our listening skills <laughs> that, you know, and I think that I think, I think it's important also to, to remember that women were talking about this uh, in a very specific way. And, and it was listening to, to really hear her perspective, to understand a different point of view, uh, to understand her experience. And it wasn't listening to problem solve. And, and again, I think there's a socialization issue here too, but I think we as men also as leaders, we, we pride ourselves in being problem solvers. And, you know, that's not always what people are looking for. People want to have somebody that they can confide in, somebody that they can share what they're going through, uh, not to be fixed. And I, I don't need you to fix me or my problem, but you could just be a good colleague, a good sounding board and listen and, and then offer that kind of support back. And I think that it goes a long way. And, and women told us that that is the thing that they most appreciated in their male allies and their male mentors, where they were great listeners mm-hmm. and they made themselves available to just listen and do that. You know, part of that also is, is not making assumptions. And I think that's an important part about this too, that well, because she identifies as a woman, therefore she must want or need or you, know, you fill in the blank there or may not want or need fill in the blank. And we heard just countless examples of that as well about how I think in some cases men men knew that they they stepped in it. They made, they made a mistake and made it an assumption and got some feedback about it. One of one of the ones I think that we we, we love to share, you know, which really came from our first book, Athena Rising, was um, – we had an interview with Janet Petra, who's the director of the Kennedy Space Center. And at the time, her, her, uh, her mentor was Robert Lightfoot, who was the, the NASA administrator, director of NASA. And, you know, the interview with Robert was really kind of interesting. He was very humble. And he said, before we talk about what worked, let me tell you what didn't work. <laughs> and he said, let me show you, let me share some, some experiences of where I didn't get it quite right. And maybe really stepped in it. He said, you know, the one example, he was in a meeting or, uh, with a uh, executive search team for a, for a hiring committee they were working on. And, you know, this, they're down to the last four candidates getting ready to make the decision and the final offer. There was one woman, she was clearly the most qualified candidate, the one who was going to get the offer. And he said, you know, before they were going to do that, he said he thought it was really important to kind of step up and show, again, how gender thoughtful or savvy he was. And he said, you know, before we do this, I just want to point out here that this job requires a lot of travel, you know, and she just had a baby a couple of weeks ago. And Mm -hmm. so I'm not sure if this is the right job for her right now. And he said, fortunately for him, he got some very direct critical feedback. He had a woman sitting across the table from him with flames coming out of her eyes. And she said, you know, Robert, I think she knows that there's a lot of travel involved. She's a pretty smart person. And I know she knows she just had a baby. So if that's the case, why don't we just let her make that decision? And had it been a man, right? Had it been a man, would he have thought of the same or had the same no. concerns. No. And isn't that Excellent. a question to often ask yourself when you're communicating with a woman? It is. Is this something that I would say or suggest to a man if I was speaking to yeah. a man? Mm. Yeah. yeah, that flipped that flip the script, as we like mm. to think of it, right? And, and that's a great way. I think it's a great intervention or tool that we can always use to think about, before I do this or say this, would I say that to somebody else? Mm -hmm. of of a different gender in that case. And I think that's a great way to at least start thinking about it and and being curious about, "Hmm, I'm not sure if this is the right thing to say or do at this point. Ask yourself that question. And Donna, here's one more thing that that holds men up. Making the offer. 
I, I'm amazed. I'm amazed how difficult many men make this. They make it awkward. Yeah, I see this talented junior woman. Somebody should mentor her, and I'm in a good position to do that. But I don't know how to offer, and so I stay on the sidelines. And you know, we try and explain to men: just don't say this. I'd like to mentor you. That sounds creepy. She doesn't know what you're talking about. Where did that come from? Just try, you know, be authentic. Hey, I've really been admiring your work. I, I really think the hiring committee got it right bringing you on board. If you ever want to just drop by and talk about next steps, I hope we can keep you here. I've got an open door. Feel free to drop by. That's not a heavy lift. It's not complicated. Most people will not find that awkward. So we often have to do some work around that with with men who can feel like they don't know where to begin. You know, and when you think about it, as you develop a relationship with just about anyone, you know, you don't bare your soul the first time you're sitting down to have a cup of coffee. You get to know each other and you get to know each other a little better and a little better and a little better. And it takes time and it takes several meetings. You know, I also thought a very um, interesting topic that you guys covered in the book was called covering. I thought it was a really interesting, you're laughing. So why don't you tell our listeners today what covering is and, uh, and how, to, how to navigate it? In terms of gender, the place where this comes up, covering, um, it, it comes up in terms of having to not reveal some part of my identity or my experience that is really salient really important to me. And when it comes to women in the workplace, I think the play, the place we see this play out a lot, Donna, is around parenting status. Mm. Um, women have a lot of pressure not to reveal that they are mothers. And why is that? Well, there's this very well-established motherhood penalty, what we often call the maternal wall in the gender bias research. So, you know, here's the scenario. If Dave and I, as men, who are you know, identified publicly that way or interviewing for a job or, or going for a promotion. And it comes up in the conversation that we're parents. In aggregate, what's going to happen is people are going to say something like, oh, that's amazing. You're a rock star at work and you're an involved dad. Kudos to you. Mm -hmm. We're more likely to get the job, more likely to get the promotion. Exactly the opposite is going to happen for exactly. her. And a lot of women know this. Mm -hmm. Yes she is going to be identified as a, quote, busy mom, right? Mm -hmm. You've heard that expression. She's unavailable. She can't travel. She's distracted. She simply won't be as work at work as much, even though that's probably entirely untrue. And you know nothing about the way she may share parenting or domestic obligations. We make those assumptions. So I think that's an area where I've seen covering more than any other. But Dave, are there any other great examples you have? No, that caregiver one, I think, is the most prominent. And, and But, you know, the interesting thing is that this also happens to men uh, today, men who want to be not just um, reap the benefits of the fatherhood bonus, as Brad said, of being a parent, but actually doing the caregiving and doing the domestic responsibilities that go with it, that they're just as likely to get the penalty. And it's just as much stigma for men uh, to talk about and to have that. And so we find the same thing, that men who are being active caregivers um, and, and certainly single single fathers are one of the hardest ones of the, in this group. 
to, they're going to do some of the same covering. They're going to hide uh, part of that their identity and is when, they, when they come to work. I have to tell you guys, I am working with a couple of companies right now, and I have to say how proud I am of them because I do see some of this shifting. And I see both men and women being commended for being great employees and leaders and great parents as well, because I think people are starting to understand how challenging it is, no matter who you are, how challenging it is to be a great parent and a great leader in business, to grow your family and to grow your life and to help grow your company. And I, I mean, really, we're on the cutting edge of the evolution of this, aren't we, guys? Yeah, I think we see it in several different ways. Uh, men today, uh, so the vast majority, you know, making up the workforce today are, is the millennial generation. Right. You know, these men um, have a more inclusive perspective of gender roles, a more egalitarian attitudes, as we like to think about it. And, and they, they're looking for and demanding and trying to find workplaces that help them to live that kind of life. Because again, most families today are dual earner, dual career families. That is the majority of families in, in Western society broadly today. So how can we find a way that both parents can work? They can be successful parents, be successful partners, and be successful at work. Right. And they need a workplace that, that values both of them and not just values them as workers, but values them in their whole identity of being parents and being partners at home and recognizing that, no, we don't. Yeah, we may be focused on work when we come to work, but we don't we don't stop being parents. We don't stop being partners when we come to work. And that comes with responsibilities and obligations. And again, to get the most out of our employees and for them to be able to really thrive there and to, to do all of that, they've got to be able to do both. And the research shows us today that men, just like women, who are looking for this, find, trying to find that workplace, you know, they're really dissatisfied when they're, when they're having to work in workplaces that don't value that, uh, that don't care about you being a parent or a partner and, and what that means for you and your work. And so they're, they're looking for that today. And organizations are beginning to, we're beginning to see the shift. We're seeing everything from more uh, parental leave or paternity and maternity leave. And the other thing I think is, is some slight, you know, it's still small for dads, uh, small upticks in take rates. The, how many are actually taking it? Because again, lots of companies offer it, but again, it's, it's maybe more challenging because of the stigma associated with paternity leave to get men to actually take it and take all of it, not just take a few days, but take, if you get 12 weeks, take every day of it um, and, and go be a good dad. And the be great benefits that come out of that, not just for the child, not just for the relationship, not just for the dad, but the employer benefits too. Bingo. I mean, it, it's really... It's really hard to believe that the employer benefits, but they do. We become, we all become better workers when that happens. So, again, I think having that, we we've desperately have to solve the child care crisis that we have in our country today, specifically in the U.S. I mean, this is a problem that we've got to get past. Um, and, again, there's, I think there's a lot of smart people working on this, but we've got to move faster. This is a problem here and now, and we have to recognize it for what it is. Donna, the other thing that I would just offer, we see companies that are really getting this right. Leaders are doing three things. And, and many of these leaders happen to be men still, right? Um, so they're doing three things. Number one, they're very clear 
if we're talking about gender equity, they are very clear in their messaging about why this matters, not just to them personally, but why it matters for the business of the organization. This is why we're doing this. Um, they're very, very clear. Second, they're willing to be transparent, which requires them, of course, to be a bit more courageous and put the data out there. They have to collect data on how their company's doing when it comes to representation of women all the way up into the C-suite, pay equity, and then they have to make that information public. And that makes a lot of leaders nervous to do that, but that's how you establish trust, both with investors, your employees, future employees, they're looking for the data. Are you just talking a good game or are you gonna show me the numbers? And then third, accountability. Um, show me how you're holding your, your middle managers accountable for producing results. You know, it's one thing to have gender targets. How are you holding people accountable for executing those and showing improvement? Um, and there can't be excuses. Your annual evaluations are going to hinge to some extent on how you're part of uh, helping us as an organization reach these targets. Mm -hmm. So clarity, transparency, and accountability. So as we get ready to wrap up, we've talked so much about what a man can do. What can women do simultaneously? Well, I'll just begin with the fact that, I mean, if, if I identify as a woman and I am in an organization where there's something like a women's network, right, or a women's ERG, and there are a lot of those, traditionally, and this includes women's conferences, right, traditionally these have been, I will actually say, sacred spaces for women to be together, commiserate, share experiences, and plan, uh, you know, strategy for reaching gender equity and having career success. But it's always been women alone, right? It's been an echo chamber. And unless that changes, unless we get comfortable inviting men in, especially men who are sincere and wanting to become part of the solution and partner with women, unless we're deliberate about making space for men in this work and in the conversation, we have a long way to go, as you said, maybe 100 years uh, to close the gender pay gap. So we have to invite men in. Um, you know, we, there was just a big study by integrating women leaders um, and, and also another one actually by Prism Work and the Kellogg Foundation looking at why men don't engage in ally behavior in the workplace. And one of the most common reasons is they don't feel it's a, there's a place for them. They hear words like gender and, you know, a women's event or whatever it might be, and they tune out immediately. That's for women, it's not for me. And they just assume I don't have a legitimate place going to that or attending or becoming a member uh, of the Women's ERG if that's offered, because I think that's not for me. So we need to invite them in, as awkward as that may sound for women who may be frustrated and say, really, I got to give you a formal invitation. Well, sometimes that helps. And the other thing I would say is reinforcement who are getting some of this right. Mm. If a guy calls something out in a meeting, for example, in a way that is really useful, so the only woman in the room doesn't have to do it again, it's helpful to go to him afterward and just say, hey, when you did that, it was really useful. I really appreciated it, and here's why. Mm -hmm. 
For a lot of men, that's an epiphany. They had no idea that they were doing something that we would construe as ally behavior. They, they just didn't think of it that way. But, but hearing that from her, oh, a light bulb goes on. That wasn't hurt for me. I could do more of that. And, and so sometimes reinforcement is useful as well. One of the challenges with a lot of this is, is not putting this back on women to do the work. Uh, because often it's, you know, because men need to have developed their awareness. They need to increase their gender intelligence and they need to have conversations with women about that. But, you know, we, you know, we come at it from the messaging that men need to initiate that. They need to be the ones to do the work and, and get self-educated first and then enter into those conversations um, with women. But I think there's other opportunities and ways that we collaborate at work. And there's so much team projects and everything that we do collaborating with men, I think is a great way where in an everyday setting of what we normally do at work that we can, we can have conversations about experiences. Those things come up in our normal everyday, or they come up in the lunchroom or the break room, uh, things that we're dealing with that we're challenged by, uh, to begin to one, to develop some of that awareness, but two, to bring them on board as allies and begin to collaborate on these and see where some of those guys are willing or interested in, in being good actionable public allies and stepping up and helping and working together on that. Maybe pregame something that you want to do ahead of time before you go into a meeting or a briefing or something where you know you have this challenge and maybe he can help, right? He, you can work together to solve some of these things that benefit everybody and not just women, not just her, but it's going to benefit him and the team as well. And I think you know we can't put enough onus on that working together and doing this in a, the everyday normal setting of what the workplace looks like. Working together and not expecting perfection, right? I mean, there is no perfection when it comes to this. When you think about it, women have really only been in the workplace, I mean, in numbers, for what? Maybe 60, 70 years? Or really even 30 or 40, the majority of us. So it's new, right? It's new for women. It's new for men. So give everybody space and room to, you know, like crash and bang a little bit, right? And to not get it perfect. We're not going to get it perfect the first time around. But the fact that we are, um, first of all, have the manual, right? We have the manual now, good guys, how men can be better allies in the workplace for women and um, to give each other room, right? Room to learn room to practice, to process and to practice, and certainly to grow. It's not easy work, that's for sure. So thank you so much, not only for showing up today, but really for infusing some energy into these conversations and for, for reigniting this process for us and for you and for everyone. Uh, so we have Brad Johnson and David Smith. Thank you so, so very much for joining us today and for sharing your expertise, your knowledge, and your time with us on the Inspiring Voice podcast. Thank Thanks you, for including us. Love their work. Brad Johnson and David Smith, authors of Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. You can connect with them at workplaceallies.com. Inspiring Voice is the media outlet of iVoice Communication. The Inspiring Voice podcast is produced by Nicholas Young, music by Jeffrey Blake, and I'm Donna Rastigian-Mack. 
iVoice Communication is a company that cultivates confident speakers, successful interpersonal communicators, and healthy human connections through effective communication. Please check out our signature six-week Strength in Leadership Communication Program. Inspiring Voice. It's our hope that through unplugging and a little bit of quiet every day, you can hear your own inspiring voice and be your own inspiring voice so you can build the richest and most rewarding life and career possible.